to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a lecture from Scott on everyday sacrifice as everyday life from the Wheaton 2019 Theological Conference. I'm uh, deeply grateful to be at the Wheaton Theology Conference, and our topic is the tactics of Romans 12, 1 to 2, over against concepts without footprints. Concepts without footprints from Charles Marsh. Some interpretations of Romans 12, 1 to 2, and I'm assuming you know what these verses are. If not, you can turn your Bibles on. Without the rustling of paper, it doesn't seem Bible, but that's the way it is. Some interpretations of Romans 12, 1 through 2 are inoffensive and offer bromides to unsuspecting pew sitters. But the life of ordinary followers of Jesus who follow Paul's offensive teachings were anything but anodyne. That kind of life, which I will call in this paper everyday sacrifice, was radical and subversive. To use the terms of Michel de Certeau, a life of everyday sacrifice was a tactic by the powerless that subverted the strategies of the Roman powerful. That's the thesis. Rome, per se, was perhaps not Paul's target. Sin and the flesh, evil agents that they are, at work in the Roman way of life, were his target. That sin and flesh were ruining the fellowship of believers in Rome. Sin and flesh in Pauline discourse are active agents, as Matthew Krausman's stunning new work has amply shown. Romans 12, 1 through 2 emerges as the opening salvo of Romans 12 through 16 against sin and the flesh because they are present in the strong and the weak. One might say, and this is my personal lingo for something I am convinced of, one might say that this exhortation is the true heart of Romans and that the theology of Romans 1 through 11 props up the exhortation of Romans 12, 1 through 2. What we find in our passage then is not to use the words of Robert Jewett, vaguely uplifting sentiments, but an earthy, demanding, sacrificial life known only in the hardships and challenges it created for the strong and the weak. Everyday life as everyday sacrifice embodies incarnation and as an agent, as a living reality, as Christ present among us. This everyday sacrifice, then, is not just a moral idea or an ethical vision, but as Kevin Rowe has argued, it is the one true life, expressing a tradition that rivals various Roman traditions, but which rival tradition is known only in its practices. This everyday sacrifice life subverts or runs against the grain of the Roman strategy in the omnipresent Roman way of life. Now, a few words about incarnation and embodiment. First, the term incarnation. Many use the term incarnation as if everyone assumes 
it can refer to Christian and ecclesial realities. While others are hesitant to use this term for anything but God becoming flesh in Jesus. So I would like to suggest that incarnation finds an embodied analogy in the Christian life, but I'm not sure I want to call that too often incarnational. That is, the pattern of God's incarnation in Christ is our pattern. It is the pattern of dying and rising, the pattern of dying to self, who we are, what we have, where we are, what we like, what we want. In order to live unto God, the incarnational kingdom mission means that we die to self so others can live. That's what it means, I think, to be incarnational. It doesn't mean being cute in your neighborhood, in other words, or being like your neighborhood. That's not incarnational. It's to die to self so others might live. That's the analogy. A second observation is that Jesus' embodied actions, talked about by Daryl Bach, my friend, were a theology brought into life. Or to reverse it, his theology, Jesus' theology of the kingdom, emerges out of his living. Jesus' kingdom vision and his kingdom theology are not simply verbal forms, but they are embodied behaviors. To shift the topic of our chapter, Romans 12 to 16, to shift to that one, in effect, are the kingdom of life of the kingdom life of Jesus embodied or remixed for the Pauline mission churches? In what follows, I will work from Romans 12, 1 through 2 as casting forth an embodied reality of redemption for the Roman house churches and seek to show that this embodied reality mimics or is an analogy to incarnation as it challenges the believers to a tactic designed to subvert Roman strategies. I will begin as a New Testament professor with eight all too brief exegetical observations of Romans 12, 1 through 2. So now I turn to reading Romans as a Christendom strategy. And I will quote Romans 12, 1 through 2. Uh, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, I think this is the NRSV, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That might be the NIV. It is not necessary here to delve into deep exegesis, but only to highlight major themes in the major treatments of these two verses. Beginning with the observation that the word therefore of 12.1 has generated the question of whether the exhortation is the logical consequence of Romans 1.1 through 11.33, while some say yes, but emphasizing Romans 5 through 8, which is a skip over 9 through 11, or the consequence of just chapters 9 through 11 with emphasis on the theme of mercy in Romans 11, 30 through 32. Leander Keck, a great New Testament scholar, seems right to me. Because of God's mercy in Christ to both Jews and Gentiles, 
The believers in Rome are exhorted, therefore, both to offer themselves as a sacrifice. Second, Paul's exhortation is that the baptized into Christ's death Roman Christians were to present their bodies as a living sacrifice, which is then clarified in verse 2 as a reciprocating, complementing, and alternating double. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Third, the offering to be made is an embodied offering, expressed here with the term, with expression, your bodies. But Roman scholarship, as it is what it is, debates what this word expression means. Whether it is your bodies is a metaphor for yourselves, or whether it refers to a more embodied idea, that is, the body in its corporeality. Yet others think that your bodies is corporate, meaning not one person, but the whole collection of believers in Rome. And so now they all disagree, and that's what makes scholars scholars. Fourth, in these two verses, Paul expands what both sacrifice and temple meant in that world and locates the temple seemingly in the house churches he is planting and the sacrifice in Christ's death Eucharist and embodied in the way of life for the Christians in Rome. Fifth, this is, Paul says, their spiritual worship, a translation that has earned a million grumbles. The NRSV's spiritual worship corresponds to the NIV's true and proper worship, and the common English Bible's appropriate priestly service. Everything hinges on this Greek word logikos, a term used but once by the Apostle Paul, though which is found throughout his world for what is reasonable and rational and logical, thus leading Leander Keck to translate a rational religion and Robert Jewett as a reasonable worship. Most today know that Paul had the lexical choice of using the word pneumatikos, spiritual, had he meant spiritual, and he didn't. So we are left to ponder something other than spiritual as the more appropriate translation. And what is tipped most in the direction of reasonable is how the word logikos is used in Paul's contemporary world uh, as rational. John Barclay concludes that the reasonableness here, though, is not simply rationality and not simply God-honoring, but is, to quote, the newly defined, is newly defined by the act of God in Christ. That's what is rational. And that the logic controlling the Christian habitus is self-consciously at odds with the prevailing logics of contemporary society, end quote from John Barclay. Further, I suspect, a logike worship, one suspects, will never lose in Pauline theology a connection to the logos, the written and living word. Thus, this calculated or reasonable worship is embodied Christoformity. Such a life of sacrifice, reasonable and proper as it is in the Christian worldview, is a vision for Christian identity and praxis in this world, and that vision sees the entire embodied life as worship. 
I think that we could do better in how we use the word worship. All right. Sixth, Romans 12.2, as stated earlier, explicates Romans 12.1 with double vision, not being conformed, but being transformed, one more negative and the other more positive. Seventh, the order not to be conformed, suske matizo, stands alongside 1 Corinthians 7.31's beautiful statement, for the present form, schema, of this world is passing away. To push the meaning of Ioni, age, toward this age or this era. This is a term expressing apostolic eschatology more than apostolic cosmology. And as such, touches on the philosophical tradition in Stoicism, but even more the apocalyptic act of God in Christ. Here's the point. The world is inhabited by the powers, and they are pressing against the Roman Christians. Eighth, and finally, the alternative, the complement, the reciprocation of saying no to this age's powers is saying yes to a revival or a renewal by God's grace through the Spirit to be transformed. The metamorphosis, translated transformed, is an act of God and has been defined very well by Richard Longenecker in his commentary that virtually broke my thumb last summer in its weight. He says, it is a complete inner, it is a complete inner change of thought, will, and desires that Christians are to allow God by means of the ministry of his Holy Spirit to bring about in their lives, resulting in a recognizable external change of actions and conduct. End of quote. Tying this now together, the sacrifice of one's embodied existence is a person's reasonable worship and manifests itself in both dis disentangling oneself from this age's powers as well as in entangling oneself in a Christian renewal. This prompts or at least leads to an ability to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I will stop here with this reading of Romans that is more or less a strategy of general Christian existence in an abstract world, a timeless word for a contextless audience. All right. What happens too easily in this kind of reading of Romans is in spite of sharp exegesis by very good scholars, is that Romans 12, 1 through, 12, 1 through 2 becomes an endorsement of Christendom, of our local brand, of our national brand, of our ecumenical brand of Christianity. Our embodied sacrifice does not subvert the world, the flesh, or sin, because it doesn't know what they are, and dodges them as they continue to pervade in our midst. Instead of subverting privilege that claimed both by the strong and the weak in Rome, it talks another language. Instead of living in Christ, we live in the self. Instead of finding peace among all our siblings in Christ, we carry on with our disunities, with utter tranquility, or perhaps a vague wish that things were different. Bless our hearts. 
Instead of eating with enemies and converting them into neighbors, we eat with one another's, who are as much alike as any social club in North America. And instead of reciprocating in spiritual gifts, we use ours and expect others to become like us or to exalt our use of our gifts. No, embodied sacrifice can fall well short if it is not seen as subversive of the world, sin, and the flesh. What concretely did Paul have in mind with this image of everyday sacrifice? To use one of J. Christian Becker's memorable expressions, what do these verses look like when we focus them on the historical particularity of Paul's situational theology? I will now contend that the more generalized reading of Romans 12, 1 through 2, which I've offered, is a strategy in De Certeau's terms, which means seeing embodied sacrifice as acts by those who are in power that consciously or unconsciously prop up that power. I contend that, what, that we can explore the same passage in another of De Certeau's terms, Namely, that Romans 12 through 1, 1 through 2 is a tactic for the marginalized. As a tactic, which is a behavior by one not in power and for the sake of subversion, as a tactic to repeat, what Paul says is subversive. But just as the theology of Romans 1 through 11 is not a dogmatic monologue, to use Becker's terms, so his appeal in Romans 12, 1 through 2 is not a general abstract call to subversion or to be serve, subversive in the sense of a principle. No, Romans 12, 1 through 2 is a call to subversion in a particular time and place. God's grace, to quote Brian Blount, is not abstractly for all. Rather, since Jews and Gentiles are, to quote him, equal partners in sin and equal partners of God's grace, the social boundaries of ethic, ethnic divisiveness have been demolished. No, Romans 12, 1 through 2's everyday sacrifice tactic is about a particular context and a particular kind of subversion. A tactic, to quote de Certeau, is the art of the weak. If incarnation in time and space is in time and space, Christoformity will be a Christian tactic against the games of power and privilege and prestige played out in Rome and in our world to do today. So let me rethink with you how we read Romans 12, 1 through 2. Reading Romans backwards... That's the title of a book I have coming out in June, and I don't care if you read it, if you buy it. <laughs> Baylor University Press, but that's not an advertisement. That's not an advertisement. It's, we're academics, you know. <laughs> Reading Romans backwards, first outlined in a short book by Paul Minear, is a needed approach for at least two reasons. Now, let me just say this. Some of you don't know Romans very well, I know. All right, there's three or four sections to Romans. Romans 1 through 8 or 1 through 4 and 5 through 8. Romans 9 through 11 and Romans 12 through 16. So reading it backwards means you do what your English teacher told you never to do. 
read the back first. All right, now why should we do that? I'm glad you asked because I wanted to say something about that. If readers today are not worn out in Romans by the time they get to Romans 9.1, they are worn out by the time they get to 12.1. This is a fact. The second reason is that Romans is so long and involved and the audience so clarified in chapters 12 through 16 that combining them is absolutely necessary. Unfortunately, one can read deep into the commentaries on Romans 1 through 8 and never hear a word about the weak and strong or the people mentioned in Romans 16, 3 through 16. And there's a lot of names mentioned there. Which is to say, Romans 12, 1 through 2 must be read in light of Romans 12 through 16. Especially verses 14 through 15 where Paul talks about the weak and the strong in order to convert our two verses from a strategy into a tactic. When we turn to Romans through the lens of the weak and the strong in Romans 14 through 15, we turn from Romans in the abstract to Romans in the real. This letter was written by a real apostle to a real group of house churches and probably at least five house churches. The households or house churches of Prisca and Aquila, of the slaves of Aristobulus, the slaves of Narcissus, the brothers with Asyncritos, and the saints with Philologos. Not exactly common names in the church today, but very important to the most significant letter in the history of Christian theology. Furthermore, the situation in Rome was not only complicated by a Jewish origin for the church in Rome near a synagogue, but an attempted destruction of that movement when Claudius sent the Jews, and I think probably Jewish Christians, away, among whom were Prisca, Prisca and Aquila, who joined up with the Pauline mission in Corinth. This led to a more Gentile center to the church with the Jewish Christians gone, until the Jewish believers returned, the Gentile culture of the Christian movement in Rome became dominant, leading to cultural tensions when, under uh, the early years of Nero probably, between the Jewish and Gentile believers, tension arose in Rome when they returned. Paul weighs in on this with labels that no doubt provoked as much as clarified. The Jewish believers, in general, he called weak, which is probably not a compliment, and the Gentile believers he called strong, which is probably also not a compliment. Among the house churches in Rome, then, there was a battle of privilege. Gentile Roman believers with social status who had power in their privilege against Jewish believers with no social status and who had no power, but were loaded themselves with elective privilege, the Bible which is one of the complicating themes of Romans chapters 9 through 11, which is also usually not read over against the weak and the strong. But I have a whole thing about that, and I have it clarified. So, Romans 15.1 expresses this tension most succinctly. I'll use the translation, and then I'll retranslate. We who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Or put in more socio-labeling terms, 
we, the donatoi, the powerful, ought to shoulder the weaknesses of the adunatoi, the powerless. That is, we ought to be pleasing, we ought not to be pleasing ourselves and making things go our own way. So I'd like to define who the weak are and who the strong are, and this is my sketch, some of which is controversial, but I'm not going to tell you which parts are. <laughs> Let the reader understand. The weak are Jewish believers who are in the stream of God's election and need to be affirmed in their election, but who have questions about the faithfulness of God to that election and who need to embrace the surprising moves of God throughout Israel's history. The weak know the Torah, they practice the Torah, but in the person of the judge of Romans 2, sit in judgment on the strong or Gentile believers, especially the strong in the Christian community in Rome, even though the weak have no privilege or power. Furthermore, the weak are tempted to resist paying taxes to Rome on the basis of the Jewish zealotry tradition, Romans 13. In addition, the weak, in the face of the judge of Romans 2, need to apply faith in Christ more radically to themselves, so discovering that they are a new example of the remnant of Israel, and they need to see that the sufficiency of faith means that Gentile believers in Christ are siblings, so they see the Torah observance, that Torah observance, is not the way of transformation for either themselves or the strong in Rome. So who are the strong? The strong are predominantly Gentiles who believe in Jesus as Messiah or King, who do not absorb, uh, observe the Torah as the will of God for them, and who have condescending and despising attitudes, probably toward Jews, but especially toward the Jewish believers in Jesus in Rome. And all of this is wrapped up in the superior higher status of the strong in Rome itself. Paul and Jewish believers who embrace the non-necessity of Torah observance are at least at times among the strong in their theological convictions about Torah observance as the way of Christoformity. But the strong are taking advantage of their superior social status to denigrate the Torah as holy and holiness as the quest of the Christians in Rome, and so they are coercing the weak into table fellowship over non-kosher food. The strong, then, are as known for their position on observance of Torah as, and for their status as they are for ethnicity. Frankly, I think this sounds a lot like a lot of churches in the United States today. And it's unfortunate that Romans is turned into abstract theology and this pastoral situation is ignored. To cut to the goal now, Romans 12, 1 through 2 is a thematic statement designed to speak to this specific situation, the weak and the strong. It is not a simple abstract Christian living statement, but a concrete expression of how two sides of a debate in Rome who are at one another's throats can learn to express unity in Christ by becoming Christoform in how they relate to one another and how they embody fellowship with one another. There is a newness at work in Romans 12, 1 through 2, that can only be called apocalyptic. And I quote again from Brian Blount. 
He says the boundaries standardized for all time at the very beginning of time have been eschatologically smashed down in the act of Jesus' coming death and resurrection. Here is a place where Paul's Christ theology crashes hard up against his creation theology, shattering the territorial lines it imposed, redrawing the orders of separation it enacted, and along the way, inaugurating the genesis of a very different kind of human social and ethical landscape. Pretty good. It's worth quoting. Which quotation leads me to a thicker reading of Romans 12, 1 through 2 now, one that ought to look more like Galatians 3.28, Colossians 3.11, and 1 Corinthians 12.13, one that is a tactic rather than a strategy. So, a tactical reading of Romans 12.1-2 now. These verses are addressed... What time do I finish? I got like eight minutes or something like that. I grew up Baptist, you know, we didn't have clocks. <laughs> Okay, these verses are addressed, as all of Romans is, to marginalized Christians in Rome. As such, these words cannot be turned into something anodyne. Words like these spoken to people like these are not going to be heard as, something, as soothing moral sentiments, to people, uh, by, but as demanding, challenging, and subverting of the Roman and Jewish ways of life. To tell the weak to die, which is what present yourself as a living sacrifice means, is not a call to comfort. It is a disciplined discomfort. It is to tell the strong that their status no longer matters. It is to tell them their condescending actions are to cease. It is to tell them to be sensitive to the food scruples of their Jewish siblings in Christ. It is to tell them to sit at the table, but not for the sake of quarreling over opinions about the rapture. I added that part about the rapture. <laughs> it is to tell them that their donatoy life is the Roman way of life and not a Christoform and cruciform way of life. It is to tell them the story of Israel updated to include their presence as genuine descendants of Abraham is now their story. Forget the Greek Old and New Testaments, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Forget the Roman Bible, Virgil's Aeneid. Embrace, he says to them, the Septuagint as your new story. It is to tell them they are not to look down, but to look up to their Jewish siblings. Read in context, Romans 12 tells the weak their privilege remains by election, by grace, and by faith in Jesus as the Messiah. It is to affirm them while also challenging them to embrace the surprising ways of God in history that now include the surprising belief of Gentiles and a surprising correlating rejection of Jesus by some of their kin. It is to tell them that God is faithful, but in very surprising ways. Thus, it is to tell them to die to some dimensions of their story and to embrace other dimensions of that story of Israel. It is to tell the weak that Torah observance is not the way of transformation. It is to tell them that all along transformation happens by God's grace, God's sovereign ways, God's surprising gift of the Spirit. It is to tell them to die to judging Gentiles and Gentile believers. 
It is to tell them that kosher food is not required for Gentile believers and that they can still sit at table with one another. It is to tell them to tolerate differences over what Jewett translates as leafy vegetables. Without defense at this point, it is to tell them to pay their taxes and not to use the tactics of the zealots. It is to tell them to accept that faith as the true response to God's grace in Christ is all that is needed and that anything behind, below, above, or in front of that squashes the generosity of God's own grace. The death to which Paul calls them, then, is the death of privilege, and it is the embrace of siblings as equals in the one family of God. This is no bromide. This, in fact, for the privileged strong, is to surrender their status. This, in fact, for the privileged weak, is also to surrender their status. This is a call to death of their past and to what Paul calls at about the same time as new creation, 2 Corinthians. When Paul says, present your bodies, something else emerges from the weak and the strong context. Robert Jewett has argued the case that many, if not most, of those mentioned in Romans chapter 16 are slave names and slave households, even tenement households. Peter Oakes has insightfully argued that if we read Romans 14, 15, in the context of a typical household in Pompeii, with some adjustments for Rome, this body will refer, in many cases, to slave bodies turning their bodies away from their masters toward a new lord, a new God, and a new family. The church, in that context, there is no longer to be abuse of the body or degradation of the body, but there is to be an honoring, a sanctifying, and an elevation of those bodies as beautiful and made in God's image. If we slip into a different register, these are the words for Jewish and Gentile bodies, believers whose bodies will not be mixed in fellowship, in worship, in marriage, in food, with bodies formerly verboten or at least restricted. To give and receive spiritual gifts is highlighted in chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, but there is a noticeable emphasis in these verses on the word body, soma, to eat with one another at the same table, which is the clearest instruction of Paul's in Romans 14 through 15. Romans 14, 1's imperative for the strong is to welcome the weak. It's followed by instructions on eating with one another and transgressing embodied boundaries previously obeyed. Romans 15, 7 turns this into mutual welcome and thus into mutual table-embodied fellowship. It is not anodyne to summon folks in our churches sit, to sit down with those in the other political party, on the opposite side of the fence economically, or with differing moral positions, especially if one is told not to argue but to talk about things in common. It is to summarize for both groups to learn what Paul states in Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
Catherine Grebe gets this exactly right when she says, the embodiedness of our existence functions as a demonstration of the power of the gospel in and over its messengers. What we do with our lives, our embodied existence, and the materiality of daily decision-making inevitably reveals the extent of the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. To the degree that the living Lord has drawn us into a new sphere of power, the powers of the present age lose their ability to conform us to the world. Christians no longer belong to these powers because their bodies have been offered as a living sacrifice to God and belong to God as the body of Jesus Christ. I will now skip to uh, the conclusion. Uh, some closing observations about everyday sacrifice now. In some ways, Kevin Van Hooser's project called The Drama of Doctrine contributes to a tactical approach to theology. Van Hooser's mantle fell over the stage as his ruling metaphor, turning the gospel, theology, and scripture into drama and script directed by a dramaturge, a theologian, toward performance of the script. If his approach leans in the direction of a theology, a canon worked out in practice, it is, it is his emphasis on performance that I want to emphasize. The church, he argues, I quote, is a company of players gathered together to stage scenes of the kingdom of God for the sake of the watching world. The direction of doctrine thus enables us as individuals and as a church to render the gospel public by leading lives in creative imitation of Christ, end of quote. In Romans, this performance is everyday sacrifice. See Kevin Rowe in his splendid book, One True Life, mounts a lengthy and eloquent defense of approaching the Christian faith vis-a-vis -vis the stoic way of life in these bold terms. He says, trust, induction, discipline, instruction, formation, apprenticeship, care, healing. These are the ways the truth of all things was known and thought. Not this or that piece of information about the human condition, not this or that view of the pneuma, not this or that take on the passions, but an existentially structuring pattern, a trajectory of living the one and only life we can live in the midst of time. This was the way truth was contested. The difference the name Stoic and Christian represent is thus lived truth, end of quote. His conclusion is that true wisdom is the repair of reason by trust in the trustworthiness of the crucified Christ, what looks to the world's way of knowing to be pure folly. That one true life in Romans is everyday sacrifice by the weak and the strong toward each other to embody that one true life. Charles Marsh offers for us a way of thinking about reading Romans through the lens of what he calls lived theology, and in doing so challenges the all-too-common strategy approach that moves monodirectionally from theology in the abstract to practice as the concrete. Marsh knows that what we do is not theologically neutral. So he observes that practices are inherently communicative 
and in the most basic sense adhere to social settings and particular places. I, uh, that end of quote. That is, what we do is not only not theologically neutral, it is often spatially determined or located. There is something he observes about actions that transcend ideas. I quote, we might add that practices theologically framed overflow sacred events and sacred spaces, churches and congregations, and religious actions and persons. Gordon McCoskey, in his sketch of practices, defines practices as observable phenomena of particular kinds of teleological human action in specific historical and communal contexts. I assume you can follow that kind of verbiage. My dad was an English teacher. He doesn't like that stuff. Say it plain, he always said to me. Whether we think of practice as the overall way of life or as a particular constellation of one's way of life in, in a practice, or even a larger sense of lived theology from which we can infer a theology, Charles Marsh provides for us an opportunity to think about everyday sacrifice through a different angle. To think about Romans in this context, then we suggest the acts of the strong and the weak toward one another, their lived theology of welcoming one another, if they are acts of embodied sacrifice for the good of the other, will overflow the theology of both Romans 6 and Romans 12 in ways that communicate something more than those words do. Marsh continues, as such, Lived theology is an apt expression for the foregrounding, foregrounding of embodied particularity in theological narrative. Now, Marsh is not against theology, nor does he reduce theology to the phraseological. However, his quest is to apply theological method to theological living. So he says, lived theology is therefore based on the rationale that the concrete forms of God's presence and action in the world promise rich and generative material for theological method, style, and pedagogy. Performance, one true life, and lived theology each brings to the fore the realities embodied in everyday sacrifice. One more now, a warning that making everyday sacrifice a habit or a practice or lived theology does not mean we are safe from problems. Lauren Winner, in her newest book, contends that habits are neither neutral nor are they always formational. She contends in some contexts those practices meant for good can become nasty deformations. Turning Romans 12 from the realm of strategies to tactics does not redeem embodied sacrifice or everyday sacrifice. Why? Sin and flesh, to get to the point. Winner puts it this way. Sin is what's ushered in by the fall and produces all this damage. That is, the word sin denotes habits, actions, and proclivities of human beings that draw what God created away from God and that unleash damage into the world. So if this is the world in which we live, our practices, our embodied sacrifices in the everyday life as a tactic of world submission can become sullied with sin and flesh. And winter continues. Things become deformed by sin in ways that are proper to the thing itself. 
to the thing being deformed. And when those deformations have consequences, you cannot separate the consequences from the deformed thing itself because it belongs to the thing potentially to have those very consequences, end of quote. So Winter explores Eucharist, which at times became the opportunity for some Christians to murder Jews for murdering Jesus. Then prayer in the hands of slave owners in New World, New World USA becomes commanding petitionary prayer, or to quote her, the wagon with which one keeps circling around a misbegotten object of desire, end of quote, including damnation of one's slaves while purportedly praying for their redemption. And finally, baptism, which can become a celebration of social status and economic privilege divorced from church and community. What deformations, I ask, as we finish, happen when we turn Romans 12, 1 through 2 from the world of strategy to the world of tactic. When embodied sacrifice, everyday sacrifice, is detached from Christoformity, from unity and peace with one another, from eating with one another, and from reciprocation of spiritual gifts, it becomes instead a strategy that mocks the cross of Christ that destroys unity and peace with self-satisfied congratulations of piety, of a division of hierarchy within one's insufferable self-righteousness at the top of peering down on others, and with spiritual gifts, not as reciprocating graces, but as offices and stations and locations where we perceive ourselves as superior because of what, ironically, we have been given by the one who gave it all.